Welcome back to our study of the House Tafel text, the Household Code text. We are in First Peter chapter three. We're going to look at the vocation of husband and wife according to Saint Peter, and we'll look at just a little bit more of his tie-in general attitudes of how we conduct ourselves as Christians here in this fallen world, and then we'll be moving in short order over to Romans thirteen. And Revelation 13, as we expand out as to our attitude as Christians toward government, and see what the Scriptures have to teach us in that regard as well. We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. All right. In First Peter chapter three, we covered、uh, the section on. Wives up to a point. Let's just start at verse one, and we'll go through the first half rather rapidly since we did cover that. And then the second half, we'll just make comment where we left off. So, First Peter chapter three, verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word—that is, even if some of your husbands are unbelievers—they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, I mean, thus is the the feminine power, and we've discussed this briefly before that the feminine power is not in going toe to toe as a male against males. That's really to make yourself weak as a female in the objective sense that you transgress God's order and design and find yourself. Contrary to his purpose, but the strength is that through respectful and pure conduct in operation with his design, thus great power, even the power, perhaps not guaranteed, but perhaps to convert an unbelieving husband, or we, I think we might we might argue from the greater to the lesser and say, well, if that power is there, then how about the power of taking a Christian husband and making him? More Christian or a better husband, desirous to change himself, and so that would certainly seem reasonable to me to place on the table as well. But this is、uh, contrary to what we're told and taught in the world today.、Uh, what a woman's power is、um, here, it is always, of course, in keeping with. The vocation, the calling that God gives. So, respectful and pure conduct. Verse three: Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Of course, how much more do we need this admonition in light of social media and Facebook and Instagram and all the other stuff, where it's, "Hey, look how good I look."、Um, look how,、uh, or what are those things called? Filters. Put a filter on. And then all of a sudden you look much better. I don't know the first thing about this stuff. Sorry,、uh, but yeah. So so you've got all this stuff to adorn the external. And here, Saint Peter's point is, 
And again, look at this in terms of rhetoric. It's not saying it would somehow be sinful for a woman to be a good steward of her external appearance. But in his rhetoric, um, don't let your focus be merely on the external as those of the world. So the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person or the hidden man of the heart. So internal, not external, which is something we don't often consider, but that God is the one who sees into the heart. And would you rather impress human beings by how you look or impress uh, God with your internal adornment? That's kind of the, the two that you can choose between. Although I, I become, I've kind of become convinced that at least in our culture, women dress up not for men, but for other women. Have you ever seen the men's magazines? They're filled of pictures with women. Have you ever seen the women's magazines? They're filled with pictures of also women. <laughs> so the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty, and there's a contrast he makes, Uh, The external is always perishing. We're always looking in the mirror and seeing a few more wrinkles, a few more gray hairs, whatever the case may be. Uh, The external is perishing, and there's precious little we can do about it. At a certain point, there's not enough Botox in the world to make a difference. (laughs) Might look like Yoda and a blimp combined. But rather than what is imperishable is that which is on the inside. And it never fades. It never goes away. You never lose it. Uh, It's forever young. It's evergreen in that sense. And God sees it, most important of all. So that's this imperishable beauty. And then concretely, what are we talking about? Of a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, And a settled spirit. I mean... It's not, you know, condemning verbosity necessarily, just a still spirit, calm spirit, and a gentle spirit, which in God's sight, before the face of God, is very precious. That is to say, of great price or worth, which here I think is the source of a thousand different sermons, but without trying to go too deep, too quick, it would just be when you consider what actually in the cosmos has value, it's not those things to which men ascribe value. We think value is gold or money or property or maybe an ability to take or defend, so raw power, armament, that kind of thing. God can, with a single word with a snap of his fingers, make as much gold as he wants, make rich, make prosperous, make beautiful, uh, make wealthy, make powerful. That's not valuable to him. What's valuable to him is a human being, and here particularly women are in view, who cultivate within themselves a gentle and quiet spirit. This internal adornment is what God looks at and says, that's as rare as the rarest and largest of all diamonds. That's precious in my sight. That is of great price and worth. We come almost to a climax of this 
sub-theme in these chapters that we've covered together in Peter's epistle because that has been one of the major sub-themes is how we all conduct ourselves and our vocations may not be seen and appreciated by our spouses, may not be seen and appreciated by our children or our parents, may not be seen or appreciated by our employee or or our employer, but God sees And these are the kinds of things that are of great price and great worth in his sight. That's why Peter uses that really strange language, a gracious thing in the sight of God, a precious thing in the sight of God. So it's really an incredible window that opens here where our vocations are performed, yes, toward our neighbor, but with our eyes set on God and What we do being done in secret via Jesus in Matthew 6 is rewarded by our Father who sees in secret. And these are the true precious things of this world and this life according to God's view of things. So great encouragement um, for wives specifically here, but also for all people in their vocations that we serve because we serve in the midst of God's sight. So... Verse 5, for this is how the holy women or wives who hoped, it's actually a present participle, so hoping in God, ongoing, used to adorn themselves, namely internally, adornment of the heart. How so? By submitting to their own husbands. And then we're given a pinnacle kind of example of this as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you are her children, you namely uh, the wives, are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So in many cases, Paul causes us to see ourselves as sons of Abraham. Here, Peter calls specifically wives to see themselves as daughters of Sarah. And I think that that's a, we all have to have people to whom we look for guidance, people to whom we look up and desire to be like them. And as opposed to I don't, whatever feminist you might look up to or whatever s- strong, empowered woman trademark the world would have you look up to, Peter would have you look to Sarah and to the faithful women of old and say, these are your true mothers, learn from them. And the same would be true for uh, men and for all of us as Christians to look to Abraham, who is described as the man of faith, and to see ourselves in his image as sons of faith, sons of Abraham through faith. So while, while there is, um, and I think that this is, I don't want to make too much of this, but while there is a call toward respectfulness, purity, subjection, and obedience, it's done voluntarily. And I think that that's what is behind the language of 
obviously if you do good, that seems to be clear enough, and do not fear anything that is frightening. That is not out of some sort of servile, um, I've got no other choice, I have to. That's not the spirit with which Peter would have you serve in this vocation. Not out of fear, but entrusting yourself to the Lord and thus voluntarily conducting yourself in this manner. In our context, over and against great pressures from the world and your social circles and your families and everything else who have almost wholly given themselves up over to in disobedience and mockery of this scriptural view. That's the plight we see ourselves in largely today and largely as a result of uh, feminism. Okay, let's pause there and see if we want to uh, if we want to discuss anything there. Everybody's either okay or fearful. There's a brave hand in the back. No, well descript, fearful. Um, I, I guess something just struck me. We were talking. You were just mentioning some of the feminism things and mm-hmm. uh, like that. And, and what struck me is. Is that a reaction to the man, you know, us men, not honoring women correctly? In other words, if you treated your spouse or you treated a woman correctly and honor the, the service they do and the things that they do, things are fine. But if you don't do that, then I'm going to say they're, you're trying, a woman will react or, or women in general will react and try to, you know, regain that status or that recognition. Is, is feminism kind of an offshoot of that? I'm not articulating this very well, but it's basically, as men, we drop the ball or we mess this up, and this is a reaction to it or a mm. fallout. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't want to exclude causation um, or mutual causation. It's just simply that we run into a bit of the chicken and the egg and what came first. But I would, say, I would say that this is the beautiful aspect of the scriptures where it's siloed off. So that the scriptures look and say, this is the role of wife, this is the role of husband. It doesn't say, this is the role of wife so long as husband is a good boy and makes it convenient for you to fulfill your vocation. Nor does it say, this is the role of husband so long as wife is a good girl and makes it convenient for you to fulfill your vocation. So in some ways, no, I think absolutely, the biblical view of siloing off the vocations precludes any of this. Yeah, well, I would do it if you didn't do it, and I wouldn't have reacted this way if you didn't react that way, and who started it anyway? You know, Um, the bottom line would be, let every Christian soul, let each man and each woman look to God and God's word and seek to fulfill your vocation without blaming your spouse in specific or men or women in general. That's Now, I think um, if we want to do some sort of cultural discourse on what feminism boiled up out of and as a movement um, or as various movements as probably the case is more accurately Um, and what was the cause of that and is there validity that just that takes us away from the scriptural frame of vocation and and this idea of you look to yours 
let, uh, let husband look to his and wife look to hers. So that's probably the best answer I can give. Um, feminism, of course, comes up around the 60s, and what good came out of the 60s? <laughs> no, not much. I think the, the fatal flaw of feminism is that in order to be fully a woman, you have to be just like a man. There's the fundamental confusion of feminism, is in order to be fully a woman, you have to be just like a man. That is the most misogynistic thing I could think of. Uh, To be a woman is to fulfill what God has designed woman to be. To be a man is to be what God has designed man to be. And so this is entirely backwards for an entire movement to say, well, look at men. Unless we're just like men, we're not equal. And from a biblical standpoint, that's insanity. It's like saying, I, I can't be equal with a cow unless I can chew grass and do cow stuff. It's a categorical error. I'm a human being. I'm not given to do cow stuff. I'm given to do human stuff. Let cows do cow stuff. And a cow has its value insofar as it's a cow, not insofar as it can act like a man. So while that's an exaggeration, you can see that there's a categorical problem when you say women must be men and men must be women. Oh, gee, what has that developed into? I can choose that if I want. It's precisely an outcropping of this feminist categorical mistake. So I think we can diagnose it on that level too, that it's, um, it should be self-evidently wrong. So much of this is based on uh, women entering the workforce And they were told they could enter the workforce because now we're going to have twice as much money and everybody's going to be twice as profitable. Is that what you're experiencing? (laughs) No, it's almost as if as soon as they entered the workforce, the cost of living went up so that now two incomes simply make ends meet in about the same way that one income used to. Boy, who would that benefit? The corporations who now have essentially doubled their workforce and received that doubling of the workforce for free. That's basically what happened in our country. Meanwhile, what happened to our children? Who's raising them? No one or the public schools. How's that going for us? So I know these things are terribly unpopular to talk about. I just don't really care. <laughs> and if this is where we're at, it's kind of like, okay, you want to cast the first stone? You, you want to try to assert that this is more wise than the scriptures or common sense? Wisdom is known by her fruit. All right. Well, that's probably enough on that. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll just add a little. Um, what he said did have some merit. I'm a relational therapist, so I look at relationship. And if you can reduce down, throw out the word feminism and all that, it's the breakdown of a relationship. It's the breakdown of our relationship with God. Mm. It's sin. 
Mm-hmm. And, and if you just categorically look at how the relationship broke down, also what you were describing earlier between if I call that the hand stack, mm-hmm. get their hand on the top, right. you know, last, right. and right. win. And that's pointless to stare at that argument. Mm-hmm. It's just pointless, and mm-hmm. it's just a sign of a negative cycle that yeah. a couple or anybody has gotten into in a breakdown of a relationship. Yes, good point. And I would argue, too, that that word relationship, particularly if you're talking about a marriage where there's troubles involved, that word relationship has to be carefully defined because Disney and media and romanticism are happy to define what that ideal relationship, quote unquote, looks like. And when we're indoctrinated with this, very frequently, and maybe this if not exaggerated, my spouse needs to be my soulmate. Where's that in the scriptures? Interestingly, it's not. Where is that in Disney and the Hallmark Channel and all throughout our culture? It's everywhere. And so my spouse needs to know my every thought, approve my every thought, support me in every way. I need to support them. We need to have this complete intimacy and psychological knowledge. I need to depend on them, and they need to depend on me. And you've got this, and everybody needs to be happy and increasingly happy, and there's romance and uh, nothing ever. And so, so, hey, Pastor Rody, fix my relationship. Make it look like that. Okay, or counselor, make it look like that. Well, from a Christian viewpoint and a biblical viewpoint, who says it's supposed to look like that? Like any of it. Because as you look through the scriptures, you won't ever find that description. Ever. Nor will you find any prescription. Nor will you find any list of, if you do this... Husband, she will do that, and you guys will mutually weave and knit together this beautiful, perfect soul harmony and life harmony where it just gets better and better and better until you die. And that's the kind of thing we believe. That's the kind of standard we hold ourselves up to. And frankly, it's garbage. And not only is it garbage invented out of thin air, but it's entirely toxic. It's toxic for men because men get put onto the treadmill of if you would just do a little more, she would respond. And women kind of get put on this perpetual backpedal of if he would just do a little more, then I would respond. And the beautiful lightning bolt of God's word is your entire goal is wrong. Your job descriptions are wrong. Culture has completely messed up the way you look at relationships or ideal relationships. Let me reveal to you the true nature of them and the true purpose of them and the true Christological shape of them. And then you, then that, that's really then the structure of what we've been studying in these texts where Christ and his church are the foundation of husband and wife. The vocations of husband and wife are described in those terms and are described as duties. Duties. That's where we're going to get to the small catechism. And it's not the 
table of romantic things, the table of ways to make your relationship work, the, the table of how to turn someone who isn't acting very much like your soulmate into your soulmate. No, it's this very unromantic, beautiful, godly idea of duties. You have a job description. It is a divine, glorious job description. The world spits on it and will teach you to spit on it. The world will hold up a false and idolatrous view of what relationships are, and you will never be able to make it. No one ever will. By the way, why do you think the divorce rate's so high? Because no one's ever the perfect couple. I'm not feeling it. She's not doing enough. He's not doing enough. Get divorced. The Bible precludes that and says, you made a vow, and in that you reflect the vow that Christ has made to us, and you have duties to accomplish, and in those duties is true blessedness. In those duties, you will discover that marriage is not for something so selfish and passing as your happiness, but for something so selfless and glorious as your holiness. Vocations are designed as the potter with the clay in order to shape and form us into those things which we would never choose to be. Why would we not choose them? Because we're sinful and because we only want what makes us happy. And God refuses that in the vocations and says, no, you will, I have something far greater in view for you. You will be holy. And through these vocations, I will shape you into that which you would never choose to be. But when you're sitting here in heaven with me looking back, you will say, God be praised. And I cannot believe I drug my feet. Or in the language of the Psalms, do not be stubborn so that God with bit and bridle has to drag you along. (laughs) So it's an entirely different worldview. It's an entirely different sense of what makes for a good marriage. It's an entirely, and I think, frankly, it's entirely freeing and blessed. And you're not dealing with all these moving targets. And you're not dealing with all these emotions. And the goalpost isn't constantly receding. You're just simply dealing with, here's marriage according to the one who created it. Here's your job description. And here are his purposes within it. So it's not very romantic, but it's beautiful, and it's divine. All right. I forgot whose question I was answering. Here you go again, making sense. (laughs) Dennis Prager, if any of you know him, this is a Jewish scholar. He threw into the mix Rosie the Riveter when the technology world exploded. And then along comes the pill. added to that what we already do as mankind we I say the words we screw everything up don't we fallen human beings screw everything up this is true and sometimes it becomes such a such a tidal wave of consensus that an entire culture gets it wrong and we need to be uh, is it red pilled is that in the movie matrix you take the red pill and you realize what reality is we need to be red-pilled by the scriptures into taking a look at what 
marriage is as described and defined by God, what the role of male and female are as described by God, and that's going to simply fly in the face of not every, not even everything we've been taught. It's deeper than that. Everything we've just simply assumed to be true. All right. Shall we get on to husbands? Let's do that. It's shorter, and it's frequently shorter, um, in Paul and in Peter, the treatment of husbands. And I, I suppose it probably has to do um, with the fact that they're both misogynists. No. It probably has to do with the fact that what, what Christianity does and what these table of duties do is in the ancient world, in the first century world, raises women up far beyond anything else. When Jesus allows women to follow him and be his disciples in the broad sense of the word, this is revolutionary. No other Jews are doing this. No other rabbis are doing this. These table of duties described... It elevate women to an incredible status, children as well, as people to actually be cared about. In the Roman family, the pater familius was basically like a small G god in his household, and he could simply put to death whomever he wanted to put to death, cast out whomever he wanted to cast out. So to have women raised to this level is revolutionary and exceedingly wonderful, and that's the way it's read. I mean, almost contrary to the way that we read it now as 21st century Americans, like, look at how this puts women down. If you went to women in the first century, they'd be like, are you kidding me? Um, they, look at how this elevates women. Now, what happens anytime you go radically against a society is you lend yourself to extremism, and that's something we have to be careful of in our own context. But that extremism unveils itself in a number of ways in the scriptures. And one of those ways is, for example, this newfound freedom of, like, uh, of women to like, oh, I can do whatever I want. Um, I'm, I'm equal to you in God's sight. Then all bets are off. And this is where you have these correctives given in the scriptures of like, hey, you are equal in Christ Jesus, but your role, biblically speaking, looks like this. Okay? And that's meant to pull it back. So in the ancient world, it would be unthinkable that a wife would deny the sexual impulse of her husband. But it, then when, hey, there is either, neither male nor female in Christ, all are one, hey, well, maybe I don't have to do this anymore. Maybe I can say no. So Paul writes in Corinthians not to deny one another. Okay? And historically in the church, that's been viewed as seriously as adultery. That is, as a marriage-breaking sin where that becomes chronic. So Luther advocated um, imprisonment and even the death sentence just as he did for those guilty of breaking the marriage by physical adultery. Just to give you a little perspective there. 
So where you have in the first century a group of women being given unprecedented standing in the Christian church over and against the cultural norms, I think that's why we see a little bit more care and time and detail taken by both Paul and Peter to really articulate the position of wife, less so than the males. I think that's the real cause. And truth be told, I think that... um, we as, I, I suspect that if Peter and Paul were writing today, it would be lengthier toward men. And why do I suspect that? I think in the first place that the, what the Holy Spirit has written is sufficient for all times and all places. So please don't understand me, or misunderstand me. This is a speculation on my part. And that speculation has to do with the fact that men more than anything, more than anyone, these days need to the technical phrase would be pull our heads out and look at the scriptures rather, I mean pull your head out of culture of course (laughs) and look at the scriptures and regain our sanity regain our, and not let go of it and not be ashamed of it or cowed into letting go of it because it's unpopular or something All right. well that aside Husbands, that section is shorter. In fact, here just a single verse, though it is lengthy. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And that's key. I love the connection here in its proximity to as Sarah obeyed Adam or Abraham calling him Lord. Husbands, you should live in your wives in an understanding way. That is, you probably should not demand that she call you Lord, that would probably demonstrate a misunderstanding and not living with your wives in an understanding way. So you want to live with your wives in an understanding way, which I think also is just a thoughtful way. Showing honor to the woman, and that's then the key articulation of what it is to live in an understanding or thoughtful way towards your wife is showing honor to her. And of course, Paul adds, or Peter adds, as the weaker, uh, asthenestero, weaker, um, could be taken as more fragile. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. So there's the appeal is that your wives, husbands are heirs with you of that life which is to come and everything that God has poured out. So just because they are the weaker vessel, you must not despise them. They are eternal vessels with you to eternally receive God's grace and mercy. So you need to understand that and live in an understanding way with them, showing honor to them as the weaker or more fragile vessel. The reason being, or since, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And the grace of life, I mean, this can be generically a reference to the, like the forgiveness of sins, but I don't think that's what it is. I think this is um, probably a little tighter translation would be of the grace, heirs of the gracious life. Remember, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We've used this, um, Peter has been using this language throughout. 
So I think, and then we've also got that. Yeah, that's, I think that's the case to be made. So what would this gracious life look like or this grace-filled life look like? It would look like a life of husband and wife, here of course husband specifically in view, patterned after those words of God. So maybe this is a bad analogy, but if you are in an ice skating rink, and you are on one end of the ice skating rink, um, and you are handed a pair of skates and told, okay, you need to get to the other end of the ice skating rink. You can throw away the skates and scramble and still make it there, but is it going to be pretty? Is it going to be grace-filled? Is it going to be precious in anyone's sight? No. Or you can put on the skates that God gives you and skate in a gracious way. Even if you slip and fall, get back up, it's going to be better than the alternative. And off you go and you get from point A to point B. There are different ways that we can go through this life. And one of the problems in American culture these days is that we just don't care about ugliness. And we think that ugliness is normal and good. How many of you have flown on an airplane recently? Yeah, (laughs) there's our pilot. I'd be be curious over the course of your career, anecdotally, have you noticed any change in how the average passenger dresses? Yes. Ah, yeah. Uh, A kind of barometer of our culture, you know, when when air travel first started, it was just as train travel or any other. You dressed up because you were out in the public and you were doing a public thing and you're also going to be jammed into a small space with other people, so you want to make that as pleasant for them as possible, including your appearance and hygiene and everything else. Uh, How's that going for us? So another analogy would be there's one way to fly across country and there's another way to fly across country. One is going to be gracious and respectful and more beautiful and aesthetically pleasing for all and another is going to be the antithesis of that. Well, there is the same course that one can set through life. And how does one live the gracious life, the grace-filled life? by receiving that forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus and then modeling oneself after Christ Jesus and the vocational parameters that he sets forth. This is something, again, lost to us largely as Americans that it would be good for us to regain. It's one of those ways that culturally we can shine forth as light and, as, and, and be, you know, actually give some taste to the blandness of the world by being salt, by standing out and living in this gracious way. So husbands, we do that, you know, not by referring to our wives as the old ball and chain or, you know, grimacing or groaning or whatever the case may be, but rather showing honor to women and You know, I think that there are many and various ways that we can do that. There are many and various ways laid out in the scriptures of doing that. Um, But to give woman honor as woman, that's praiseworthy. 
and it's glorious and it's wonderful. And so that's part and parcel of what we want to do, and that's what we can do counterculturally as as well. Is as husbands show honor to our wives and show honor to the vocation of wife and that mutual vocation then of marriage. Speak highly of it. Speak well of it. Um, hide faults and cover faults while praising what is good and and what is. Uh, graciously done by the wife. So I think these are all ways in which we can, of course, live, and that will make women in our houses much more happy. Jordan Peterson, um, many of you know him, but has done some work, obviously, in counseling couples, and he makes the comment that the ideal ratio is something like five compliments for every one criticism. Yikes. (laughs) But there's something to shoot for. And that probably is a subset or an example of what it would mean to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Are you building up and praising and thanking and supporting your wife verbally and behaviorally um, to a much greater percentage than you're criticizing, attacking, etc.? So that might be room for us to think and room for us to grow, leaning into how we show honor. And then as we do that, as we engage in that process, um, of course, internally in terms of the vocation, but then externally in terms of how we speak and talk about marriage, you know, when, it, when young people get, get married um, these days or say, hey, we're engaged, very frequently the, the response is, why? Or, you're too young. Or, have you thought this through? That's not exactly... <laughs> that, what that has to do with is, is data that we've collected by how fallen and messed up our culture is and then what's resulted in uh, our marriages or marriages we know as a result of that. But what we ought to have in mind is what God gives in marriage and what God sets before as the duties of husband and wife in this beautiful dance and reflection of Christ in his church. That's something praiseworthy and commendable and something we can praise and commend in good faith and without you know, feeling dishonest about it. So we can also honor the woman, the wife, the marriage in that way and how we speak and act. All right, so all of this then, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And I think um, the study note on verse 7, it's about halfway down in that paragraph. It says, disrespect and mistreatment would prevent husband and wife from praying together. Such sins would also cause God to refuse their requests. That's a strong statement. It's certainly the threat of the law. I don't think it's necessarily true. And then Luther's got this great statement. A husband must bear in mind that his wife is a Christian too and is God's work or vessel. Both should conduct themselves in such a way that the wife holds her husband in honor and that the husband in turn gives his wife the honor that is her due. If this were observed, peace and love would reign. Otherwise, where this understanding is lacking, there is nothing but aversion in marriage. 
For this reason it happens that if a man and a woman take each other solely for the purpose of sensual pleasure and are intent on having happy days and sensual pleasure. Let me read that again, particularly the f- that first part of the clause. And are intent on having happy days and sensual pleasure. They find nothing but heartache. I mean, Luther, even 500 years ago, so like if you're getting into marriage for sensual pleasure, that's obvious enough. But getting into marriage because it's like, hey, happy days here on out, then you've misunderstood the essence of marriage. Because marriage isn't necessarily for happier for days, it's for better or for worse. Not for happiness, but for holiness, etc. So these are really brilliant lines from Luther. His final sentence, but if you have regard for God's work, what's God's work? Obviously salvation's in view, but the shape of the vocations. If you have regard for God's work and will, that is his desires as articulated for husband and wife, you can lead a Christian life in matrimony. Then you will not live as the heathen live. And again, very interesting point that Luther draws out, that that a Christian marriage, ideally, because both are following the vocational callings of God, uh, both husband and wife, then the Christian marriage is going to look different than the heathen marriage. The ideals and goals, the structure and shape, the sense of duty, is going, they're all going to be ordered differently. And that's there in Luther's last statement, then you will not live as the heathen live. So, you know, if a man or a woman wants to get married, great, that's wonderful. What do they have in their mind when they think, I want to get married, or I want to get married to this person. Is it foremost, I want to reflect the love of Christ and his church in this way with this person? I want to fulfill this set of duties that God has given me to fulfill. I want to bind myself to this person in good times or bad, thus showing forth the love of Christ and his unflinching love for us, whether the Lord gives or takes away. Is that what I have in mind when I'm looking toward marriage, or is it something else? And if it's something else, how do we bring them to see the biblical version of marriage? Because that's the only way in which you're going to really live the fullness and understand the fullness of what marriage is as God intends. Okay, that your prayers may not be hindered. Yeah, that's, we, we kind of covered that, that if they're not praying together. But, I, but that's not explicit in the text either. Um, frequently, this is just a concrete thing. In the ancient world, you don't have electricity. So that's good and bad. But what you would do then is you would tend to go to bed even when it's, uh, just when it's dark. You'd go to sleep. So in some places, that's, six or seven o'clock at night. And you'd sleep for as long as you could sleep, and then you'd wake up in the middle of the night. This is like, um, you can see this reflected in some of the Psalms with the prayers. You think, how did he wake up in the middle of the night? He doesn't have an alarm clock. Uh, but you would, you would wake up, and frequently your husband, husband and wife would wake up together, and that would be an opportunity for prayer, 
marital relations, a little bit of food, whatever the case may be, and then you would go back to sleep. You go back to bed and just kind of doze until the morning, until it's light and you get up. And this, this was commonplace in many cultures. And so that idea of when you wake up at night, in the middle of night, after sort of that first sleep, and you just you can't sleep anymore, that that's your opportunity for prayer. Well, if, you're, if you and your spouse are at odds, you're not going to be having marital relations, you're not going to be having prayer, you're not going to be, the whole, that whole time is a time that's now defunct. And so if I had to guess if there's a concrete kind of circumstance that uh, calls this language to Peter's mind, it's probably that. Um, But otherwise, generally, as the study note takes it, it's also true. And And thus, as the study note takes it, your prayers, plural, the prayers of husband and wife, are hindered if you're at each other's throat. Okay, so that's husbands. Anything else that stood out to you from the text or, you know, from our culture that uh, you think needs comment or, or treatment? There's a hand up here. We'll get you a microphone. Just to connect the prayers to... Uh, what you were saying, Pastor, about Jordan Peterson and the five compliments to one criticism. You know, if we're praying about our spouses or with our spouses, you know, ideally, you know, any prayer that we have to God is better when we're recognizing what God's already doing for us. Mm-hmm. And and when we don't recognize that, you know, we're just, we're more miserable and all those things. And sometimes bad, really bad things are happening, so understand when we have those mm-hmm. out of the depths yeah. type of prayers but then you apply that to the marital relationship if you know ideally we're praying like five maybe five things that my spouse did for me that are great and sure. thank you lord for that and then here's one thing that my spouse didn't do and the lord helped my spouse to do that kind of thing right like i guess that's a healthy ratio but if it's the inverse of that you know, and it's just a complaint session to God about your spouse. Mm. You know, you might even be saying things that you don't, that God graciously will not grant, one, um, or things that just you're praying in your anger that aren't even true. So your prayers could be hindered that way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, extrapolating a bit there. But I think, it's a, I think it's a really good, good point, and your concrete example leads me to think more broadly, too, that... You know, so often the reason why in our culture, like even Christians, Christian husband looks down at wife or Christian wife looks down at husband is not because they're failing to do their biblical duties, but because they're failing to live up to this disnified romantic standard, which is a kind of legalism to which no one can attain. So the beautiful and, and fully gracious component of this is then instead of holding your spouse to an impossible standard and then always being disappointed in them, you hold them to the biblical standard and suddenly you give thanks and praise to God and you realize what a precious gift you have. And Luther will even talk this way, that if a, if a man has a Christian wife who even barely and basically fulfills her duties 
if a Christian woman has a Christian man who even barely and basically fulfills his duties. We should give thanks and praise because this is a miracle of all miracles. This is rare and exceeding upon the face of the earth. And we ought to give thanks to God and marvel that he's set this man, this woman, into our lives, into our homes. Um, And instead of criticizing them, give thanks and praise for the unbelievably rare treasure that is a Christian spouse simply living in good faith according to their vocational duties. That is an, you know, there's a proverb to this. uh, Yeah, I can't recall it exactly, but paraphrasing, like it's a, a godly woman is greater than all the treasures of the earth or something to this effect. That's exactly right. That's the perspective. Yeah. All right. Any uh, any other questions, comments? There's one over here on the left hand side or right hand side. <laughs> Sorry, confused you. Straight on for you. Uh, along the lines of what you said, uh, like in our culture, um, I don't like using this word too much, but trophy wife. Uh, we have like uh, ideals or these false. Uh, really like idolatry of the in our minds of what you know what the perfect guy perfect girl live in this house kids don't mess up you know you got some good cars toys and stuff and it's a form of idolatry you know because we've got an idol of of a, of a false ideal yeah so i think it goes deep, deep in our sin nature besides just not fulfilling these Our culture is pushing a false idol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very worship, well said. That we worship in the movies. Yeah, very well said. Beautiful man, beautiful women with beautiful kids. Everyone's successful and wealthy. There's never any stress or strains or heartaches. And uh, frequently this is put forward to us in, um, in television and media and social media as this is attainable and achievable when in fact it's not, nor is it anywhere the biblical goal. Right, and so we kind of envy that, but that envy is uh, really a misplaced envy. Who we would rather envy would be um, people who are faithfully living out their vocations. Yeah, they're just not going to get the praise of men, but the praise of God. Yeah. Please. Uh, so, considering that this whole romantic idea is very overblown nowadays, and um, as you said, impossible to live up to and not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there might be able there might be a tendency to fall into the opposite error of um, I'm just doing this because I have to it is my duty as a wife to do these things and you know maybe a robotic sort of here here are your compliments be be content with that Uh, do you believe that there is a possibility to fall into that error and if so how do we avoid it Mm. no I don't think so I gladly embrace that extreme yeah, because that would be that would be absolutely healthy. Um, you know, the Bible is filled with arranged marriages. Uh, only only recently has it been this idea that you two have to be, you know, fall in love, which is really fall in lust. And once the lust wears off, are you still in love? Um, there, a part and parcel of this romantic idea is like. Well, if you don't really feel it from the depths of your heart, then it doesn't count. 
my wife could care less what's in the depths of my heart when I'm taking out the trash as long as I do it. Right? And, and, the, and the doing it actually reveals my heart more than anything. My heart might be saying, I want to sit and watch the football game. But the better part of my heart is saying, no, you're going to go do this against your will. And what is my wife going to commend that? And so I think this idea, um, you know, obviously we would, you know, it's a blessed marriage if there is, if there is attraction, if there is like... Um, feeling and emotion and sentiment that's all good and nobody's against that but not once in all the scriptures do you see that as a necessary ingredient you see so that what you see scripturally is and again this is why it's so completely unromantic and so completely appalling to us in our heart of hearts knowing that our heart of hearts is sinful and from which proceed, from what proceeds all manner of evil is simply this idea that even if all that were gone, there was no attraction or affection or love or whatever you want to say, simply that's not required to live a godly marriage. I know that that's scandalous to say. I know that that's like, well, that sounds grumpy and not, not nice, but it, does, it just doesn't matter. That's what the Bible gives us to do. And it's actually beautiful freeing, beautifully freeing, because, hey, whether I'm in it or not in it, I'm doing it. Whether my wife's in it or not in it, she's doing it. That's how marriage works. We're forgiving each other. We're being gracious to each other. We're lifting each other up. Um, it, you know, we get to the end of the race and God doesn't say, now on a scale of one to ten, how attracted to, are, you, are you to your spouse? I mean, that's just never a question. But it will be a question, in essence, um, how you conducted yourself according to your vocation or your vocations. So God is, God is much less interested in the smushy, mushy, you know, hold my hand while birds sing in circles around us than we are. We think in order for it to be valid or legitimate, that stuff has to be going on. It's simply not the case. Now, where you are conducting yourself in a godly way and you've got butterflies in your heart and flying around your head and squirrels putting, you know, dressing your wife for you and everything is great, um, maybe that weekend, um, well, then God be praised and give thanks to God because those are all blessings. But I would say that that's icing on the cake and that we shouldn't mistake the icing for the cake. We don't hate the icing. We give thanks and praise when we have it, but we recognize that the cake is still the cake, even without it. All right, that's where we'll have to stop. The Lord be with you.